Well, Pastor Colby Atkins is a great guy. I don't know how well you know Colby. He is, uh, he's the big one, just in case you're wondering. Now, let's say Colby and I are hanging out at the mall, our favorite thing to do. And we're, we're walking through the mall, and we come across some friends of mine. Colby doesn't know them. And they are not church people. They're not interested in God. They're yuppie-ish sort of folk, 30-something, neat people. And I want to introduce them to Colby. What might I say? Where I would say, hey, you guys, let me, let me introduce you to a friend of mine, Colby. Colby used to train killer whales at SeaWorld, which is, in fact, true. Uh, Colby, his, he's uh, doing the grad school thing. His wife's an accountant. They got three great kids. This is Colby. Did I say anything that wasn't true about Colby there? No, no, it's all true. Well, we leave those guys in the cafe court. We keep going through the mall and we come across some other friends of mine. They're neighbors of mine, actually. They're uh, wannabe professional rockers. They got a garage band and they're into uh, skating, that kind of thing. And so I introduce them to Colby and I say, hey, you guys, here's Colby. I want want you to meet Colby. He is an incredible guitar player. Man, if you guys ever jam and you're looking for someone to scream on the guitar, bring this guy over. He can do it. Now, Colby also goes extreme snowboarding once a year in Colorado. You should get to know this guy. Now, did I say anything not true about Colby? No, everything I said was 100% accurate. Different than the first way I, I introduced him, right? And the, the, the difference was just based on who I was talking to. We keep walking through the mall. We come across some pastor friends of mine. And I want to introduce them to Colby. And so I say, hey, you guys, I want you to meet Pastor Colby Atkins. Uh, Colby's one of the pastors at our church. He directs one of our, our worship services. Uh, again, he's seeking to get his grad school in, in ministry. He's got his degree from Asbury in ministry. He's got a passion to see people understand what the Bible says about Jesus. Did I say anything not true about Colby? No, everything I shared was 100% accurate. Once in a while, folk will ask me, why do we have four Gospels? I mean, wouldn't one have sufficed? I mean, there's a lot of repetition. And why, why, why do we have four? And part of the reason is that there are four specific groups that God is trying to introduce Jesus to. And he's, he's, he wants so much. This, this tells us something about God. He wants us so much to understand who Jesus is, that he was tailor-making it for the different groups. Um, it's important that we understand who Jesus is. It amazes me in this world, in this high literacy uh, era of the United States of America, how much ignorance is out there regarding who Jesus is. Jesus is uh, a great moral teacher. He's just one of the world's many religious people. That's the thought. You know, one of the Gospels we want to look at for just a brief moment this morning as we look at the life of Jesus is the Gospel, my favorite one, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Now, it's important because, again, he's introducing, you know, Matthew's talking to the theologians trying to introduce Jesus. And John's talking to the, the Greek philosopher people trying to introduce Jesus. But Mark is talking to the, the Roman Christians. These guys didn't grow up in the Holy Land. These guys don't have a lot of understanding with the Old Testament. These guys, I call them, you know, blue collar, uh, hardworking folk. And these guys aren't interested in theology. They're not interested in philosophy. They're not interested in theory. Their, their issue is, does it? Work. They are pragmatists extraordinaire. They want to know, does this work? If it doesn't work, you know, I've got other things to do. Thank you very much. They're very much pragmatists. Also, you need to know something about Mark's audience. These guys are persecuted. Mark written probably early, early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And, and 
up to this point, Christianity is considered a basically an aberration of Judaism. It's just kind of a cult. It's kind of in the shadows, just growing a little bit. It's part of a, a Judaistic sort of thing. And in Rome, that's where it was. That's what was going on. Now, 64 A.D. in Rome, great Roman fire happens. Ten of the 14 wards in, in Rome burned up. And uh, tradition tells us that the Caesar, Nero, is the one who ordered the fire be set because there was kind of like a slum area. It took care of all the, the, the poor people were living there, and he wanted to rebuild it. Tradition says that he played his harp while he watched, while he watched it burn. Well, the people who were displaced now are a little bit ticked off, and so they're trying to figure out, now what are they going to do? Word on the street is that Nero did this, and so they're raising up in a coup, and it's, 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 it's not looking good for Nero. So he starts looking around, soon who he could blame, and guess what? He blames uh, the Christians. Yes, yes, this cult, these are the guys that did it. And so major persecution happens among the Christians. Look what Tacitus writes about this at this point. It says, accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Next, on their own disclosures, vast numbers were convicted. Every sort of derision was added to their death. They were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts and dismembered by dogs. Others were set afire to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle. Now, you can imagine at this point these Roman Christians are being chased down the alley by a bunch of, of, of Roman guards, and they're asking themselves, am I sure I'm into this? You know, who is Jesus anyway? Why am I doing this again? So this is, this is the people that Mark is writing to. Uh, there are also people that Mark is addressing in a secondary sense. These are the non-believers that are on the sidelines that are watching this all unravel, and they're saying, for crying out loud, you Christians... Why don't you just deny Christ? Why don't you just get out of the cult? I mean, look what it's costing you. It can't be worth it. And so Mark writes to these people to try to answer that question. I don't know if you've ever been in such a situation. Maybe you're on the inside and the heat is starting to, to rise and you're starting, the cost is starting to get heavy. And you ask yourself, who is Jesus again? I mean, is this legit? Or maybe you're on the outside looking in. You're going, now, tell me again, why would anybody... Decide to go to church every Sunday for crying out loud. What is this about? And you're just not sure. Well, Mark starts to let us know why. Mark chapter 1. This is beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Now this is huge. Because I taught religion on the secular college classroom. And it's interesting. The text they use, incredibly politically correct. Jesus was just one among many religious leaders. Christianity is just one among several world religions. And you, God forbid that you even infer that Christianity might be just a little bit different. But I'm not in the college classroom this morning, so I can tell you that Christianity is radically different. It's, it's unique. It's not just the best one of peers. It's just in a whole different category, and that's because its founder was, was unique. Every other world religion, I mean, name one, every other world religion is based on the teachings of the founder. Islam's based on the teachings that, that Muhammad got from the angel Gabriel, they say. And Confucianism is based on the teachings of Confucius. And, and Buddhism is based on the philosophy of the Buddha. Uh, the, every world religion is based on the teachings of, of, of the founder, but not Christianity. Christianity isn't based on the teachings of Jesus. It's based on who he was and what he did. Historical fact. Now, Christians will try, supposed to anyway, abide by the teachings of Jesus. But that's a secondary thing. 
It's on who he was and what he was about. It says here, the son of God. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty big claim. And Christianity is unique because its founder is unique, Jesus. And so we're going we're gonna to look. Now, you might not agree with, with what Jesus says he is, with what it says he did. You might not, you might not agree, but you need to know that the truth because God has gone to so much work for Gospels to let us know. He really wants us to know who Jesus was. And then we've got a belief issue. You can choose to abide by that or believe it or not. First of all, Jesus is, is unique in his claims. Okay, he's unique in his claims. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus is claiming deity. He's talking to the Pharisees here. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The, the, the Pharisees counter back. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, this phrase, I am, what he's referring to is what they would have understood clearly. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is talking to the burning bush. You know, God in the burning bush. And God in the burning bush says, Moses. You know, I don't know how his voice sounds, but I'm going to go with the television thing. Moses, go to Egypt. And Moses says, I don't know if I want to go to Egypt. There's a contract down on me in Egypt, and I kind of like things here in the desert. And he says, you go, I'm God, go. And so, so he's going back and forth with God. And he says, well, God, what if I get there? And they say, God, who? I mean, what do I tell them? And God says, if they ask my name, Exodus 3, he says, this is what you're supposed to tell them. Tell them that I am sent you. That's Yahweh. That's Jehovah. It's, so Jesus here very clearly is saying, before Abraham was born, I am. He was claiming deity. Now, you need to know that no other religious leader, Muhammad didn't, Confucius didn't, no other religious leader claims deity. Jesus is unique in this. He's got some audacious claims. Look at this. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're hanging out in your driveway. Your neighbor just gets through cutting his grass. He comes over to talk to you. You say, hey, John, how are you? Providing that that's his name. And, and he says, looks at you and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. What are you thinking of John at this point, right? Yeah, what are you smoking, John? You know, what are you, you starting a cult here? What's going on? What are you, what are you, you're thinking that he's, he's, he's had too many. Something is really wrong with John. For Jesus to make these kind of claims, this is pretty intense and pretty significant. No other religious leader makes claims like this about himself. It's very, it puts Christianity in a whole different category. Now, Jesus makes these kinds of claims about himself, but he doesn't say blindly, just believe it. Because he knows a little bit better than that. A lot of people will make kind of claims, but he's going, he wants to give us a little evidence. And so Jesus is unique in fulfilled prophecy. Let's see if we've got that on the next one more he's unique and fulfilled prophecy. You know, I think this is fascinating for me because the Old Testament is written anywhere between 1,500 years and 400 years before Jesus. It's according to which, which part of it you want to read. 
In the, the whole Old Testament, 300 times it talks about one day God's going to send his son, the Messiah, into the world. And, and the scholars tell us that there are anywhere between 61 and 109 major prophecies about this Messiah. You know, it's according to how you want to define major. Here are just, just, just eight of them. It said that he would be from Abraham's seed. Now, Abraham had lots of, had some kids and grandkids and lots of grandkids and that kind of thing. But, but the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. It's one of his great-grandchildren. He would then be from the family of King David. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrathah was a cheap podunk town. I mean, it's kind of like McCain or something. You know, it's just... just... <laughs> if you're from McCain, I'm, I'm sure it's a wonderful place. But either way, Jesus would be born there. It says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is what Judas got for betraying the Messiah, 30 pieces of silver. The prophecy is that he would, he would be crucified, which is an incredible prophecy. It describes crucifixion in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before the Romans invented crucifixion. It says that Jesus would, would die, or the Messiah would die among thieves. Think of Golgotha, one on his left, one on his right. It says that Jesus would be buried. The Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea uh, puts Jesus in his tomb. Now, there's 61 to 109 of these. And Josh McDowell points out that uh, Peter Stoner, a mathematician, has checked this out. And he said that for one person to fulfill just eight of these prophecies, this 61 to 109, this one person to fulfill just eight of them, the odds of doing that are one in ten to the 17th power. That's like one in 100,000 trillion. And Josh McDowell gives us a word picture with this. He says it's kind of like taking the state of Texas and filling it two feet high with silver dollars. Whole state. That's a long state if you're ever trying to do that. Two feet high with silver dollars. Marking one of them with a red dot. And then blindfolding somebody and sending them out. And on his first try, first one he picks up is the silver dollar with the red dot. That's the odds of this happening. That's only eight. If you were going to fulfill 16 of these, it's one. Odds are one in 10 to the 45th power. That's a decimal point with 44 zeros and a one. I'm not a mathematician, but they don't call that a probability. They call that an impossibility. And that's just 16. Can you imagine fulfilling 109 of these things? Now, it's amazing because no other religious leader claims that there were even prophecies about, about their birth. None. No other religious leaders' followers claimed that there were prophecies about their birth that were fulfilled. But Jesus, he stands alone in this category. That's why we say he's not just one of, he's just different, different category altogether. Also, Jesus is unique in his works and the things that, that he, he did and what, what he accomplished. Let me see, we've got several of the works that he's done. And again, the Gospels are filled with these. Uh, Mark 2, he heals paralysis. Mark 3, he heals the gnarled limbs. Mark 4, he calms the storm. Mark 5, he raises the dead. Mark 6, he walks on the water. Mark 7, he heals deafness. He multiplies bread and heals blindness in Mark 8. Mark 9, he casts out demons. On and on and on and on. Now, it's, it's, he knows that just saying that I'm, I'm God is, is a huge thing to swallow. So what he does is he decides to give some proof. I know if someone came to me and they said, I'm God, to you, first thing you might retort is prove it. Oh, yeah? Do something God-esque. Show me. Show me. Look what the text says here. 
I am the father of one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the father. For which of these do you stone me? He says, I, I know it's tough to believe that I'm God. I mean, I know it's a big step, but I'm doing good. the things that you said only God can do. Which one of these things, walking on the water, raising the dead, you, you pick which one uh, indicts me, says that I'm not it. And they don't even deny his works. I love this. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It's amazing to me that some folk are so shut down. He cannot be God that they won't look at the evidence. They, 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 they can't see it. It's important for us to realize that no other religious founder claims to have done miracles. Muhammad does not claim to have done miracles. Uh, the Buddha does not claim to have done miracles. The, the only one that claims to have done miracles, whose followers say he did miracles, is Jesus Christ. V- very, very significant. Jesus is also unique, not just in his claim, not just in his work. He, he's, he's unique. Let's see what we've got here. This is in his death. This is amazing to me. Because, again, no other religious leader do they make a big thing about his death. But Jesus, I mean, it's a central thing. All four Gospels build up to the cross. Christians for generations wear the cross. His death is the major, most important thing. Now, there's a reason why, and that's because every other world religion... They have, however they want to define salvation, and they all define it one way or the other, the way you achieve salvation in every other world religion is by doing certain things. Religion can be spelled D-O, do. You've got, to, you've got to do certain things. You have to do them for a certain amount of time. You have to get better and better in your reincarnated states, and then you'll reach nirvana. You have to, you have to do different things and, and keep doing them, and as you're doing them, then you reach salvation. And unless you do the right things, amount right amount of things in the right timing, you're not going to achieve salvation. But but Christianity is a little bit different. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. And it's the thing that we don't have to do anything. Jesus did all that needs to be done. Now, understanding the problem is, is half the, the issue as far as figuring out what the salvation, what the answer is. Christianity defines the issue this way. It says that we were created perfect. We were created in relationship with God. We understood life. We lived it to its full. But then sin came in, and basically that was uh, blowing God off, saying, I'm going to do things my own way. Uh, We think sin is the biggies, you know, the real big stuff. But Jesus redefines that for us, and he says, oh, no, no, it's it's not just immorality. See, sin is also lust. And sin is is pride. And sin is is hate, it's unforgiveness, and sin is neglect, and sin is laziness. And not only that, the scripture goes on to say that sin is not just doing bad stuff, even a little bit of bad stuff, bad stuff. Sin is also not doing good stuff. If you know you should do something good and you don't do it, then to you it's sin. Now let me ask you, how many times do you think the average person sins a day? Now if you found somebody really, really good... Maybe they would sin only three times a day, right? I don't, I don't know if you could find anyone that good, but maybe let's just say you did. Well, that's what, 20 times a week, roughly, 80 times a month. That's about 1,000 times a year, 1,000 sins. They live 70 years. They got 70,000 sins to their name. You go to court with 70,000 counts of murder. What happens to you? The judge, ah, I'll let you off. No, you're in all kinds of trouble. You're in all kinds of trouble. It's like in, in, in heaven, we all have a big whiteboard. 
and, and uh, with your name at the top of it. And every time you sin, don't you love this? Every time you sin, you do what you're not supposed to do. You don't do what you're supposed to do. God takes out the marker and he writes uh, that on the whiteboard. And then one day you stand before him. You say, hey, man, let me into heaven. And God says, why should I let you into heaven? You said, well, I've been pretty good. And God looks at the board. And he says, excuse me, do what? He says, heaven's perfect. And if I let anybody in here who's not perfect, it's not going to be perfect anymore. So pretty good. It's just not going to. Sorry. And what do you do? And what Christianity says, this is a problem. What Christianity says is what happened is when Jesus came, he came to die. It's fascinating. Look what he says. Look what Jesus says. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus says that the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. He's praying in Gethsemane. Look what Jesus says. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this hour, this reason, that I came to this hour. He's in Gethsemane. The guards come. Remember this? And they, they, they come after Jesus. And Peter, he pulls his little dagger. He starts taking these guys on. Jesus stops them. He says, whoa, Peter, stop. He says, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And then in John 18, I love this, because then what he does is, is all these guys are coming at him. And Jesus looks at him. He says, well, who are you here for? And they said, well, we're looking for Jesus. And I can see Jesus takes a step towards them and he says, I'm he. And John 18 says they all fall down on, you know, they're all falling down on top of each other. Whoa! And they're all falling down and they're, they're tripping over each other. And I can imagine Jesus looks at Peter. You know, this is the, you know, the curly mole Larry battalion. I can take these guys out. This is not an issue, Peter. I don't need your help with your dagger. Thank you very much. We don't need that. But I have to die. You don't understand. This is why I came. He came to die. No other. No other. Oh, lots of world religions. No other world religions. They make a deal out of the death of the founder. Jesus is also unique in his resurrection. And this is amazing. Because if you went to the tomb of Muhammad, you would find his bones, his remains. If you went to the tomb of Confucius, if you went to the tomb of one of the Buddhas, you'd find their remains. If you went to the tomb of Jesus, it'd be empty. Now, now this is an amazing thing because in the book of Acts, it's so interesting. Acts happens right after the Gospels. Jesus just rose. And, and, and so these guys start preaching. And there's lots of sermons written in the book of Acts. The number one common denominator in all the sermons is this. The resurrection. There's, they're, they're not preaching a doctrinal statement. They're preaching what they saw. I'm telling you, I saw this. He rose from the dead. An amazing, amazing feat. Uh, now, it, all that would need to happen at this point 
is a Pharisee or somebody to drag up the corpse of Jesus and pull it out of the tomb and say, hang on, hang on. I thought you said this guy was raised from the dead. Look, what we've, what are you, he's not risen. And that would have silenced everything. Look, look what uh, this next quote. Amazing. Tom Anderson, he's the former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association. He says, with an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. So there's nobody that came out and, and produced a body. Nobody. And it's, it's interesting when you, when you think about this empty tomb deal, how they started to explain this. And, of course, a key explanation was that the disciples, see those, those, those mean old disciples, they stole the body. Look what the plan they concocted. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night. And stole him away while we were asleep. Now, this plan has got a fatal flaw. Do you see this? I mean, if you're sleeping, how do you know who stole the body? How do you have any clue who stole the body? Maybe you were sleepwalking and you went to the wrong tomb yourself. Maybe Parthians came by or aliens and you have no clue who stole the body. But this is what they were supposed to say while these guys were sleeping, which, by the way, was a capital offense for them to go to sleep. And you can imagine this. They've got four to 16 Roman guards. All of them have killed people. They're all trained warriors. And there they are in front of the tomb. And the apostles come up while they're supposedly sleeping. All of them are sleeping. And they don't make a noise. And they bust the, the Roman seal, which, by the way, was a capital offense. And then they move this two-ton boulder quietly. Ready, guys? Shh. Ooh, shh. Peter, Peter, shh. They're, they're, and they're trying to not wake these guys up. And then they drag the body out and they hide it someplace. And then they go tell everybody Jesus rose. And then they are killed because of that. And their families are killed because of that. And their friends are killed because of that. This makes no sense. It makes no sense. You have to also ask yourself, what about the, the transformation of the apostles? This is amazing because these guys in Gethsemane, they thought Jesus was going to take out Rome and he was going to set up his kingdom. Right. That's what they were thinking. So when they saw Jesus arrested by the guards, look what it says what happened to them. Everyone deserted him and fled. They left him. He's alone. And when he's, when he's hanging on the cross, the apostles are, are looking at him, dying, going, he was supposed to set up his kingdom. What's going on? I followed. And the scripture lets us know that these guys were reduced to an emotional mess. And these guys were, became cowardly. They got upstairs in the room and they locked the door because they knew the religious leaders took out Jesus, who could walk on water. Certainly they were going to come after them next. And they were scared to death. They were wimps. But then something happens. What, what happens? It's radical because just a couple short weeks later, what you find is all 11 of these cowardly guys are out in the street preaching. This is what they're preaching. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. No one can oppose that and say, no, he didn't. Oh, yeah, I guess he did. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, these guys were going to pay for this message with their life. And notice again, they're not preaching a doctrinal statement. They're preaching what we saw. Now, what happened? No teaching could suddenly transform all of these guys in such a radical, radical way. It's amazing. Simon Greenleaf, who is the royal professor of law at Harvard, skeptic, didn't believe this resurrection thing could be true. He sought out to apply his laws of evidence to the resurrection. This is what he says. It was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. You find that the chair of the Department of History at Oxford says this. Thomas Arnold says, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidences of those who were written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Lord Darling, one of the chief justices of England, says this. There exists such an overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world would fail to bring a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Who Jesus was and what he did is what Christianity is based on. Completely different. Completely different. Not a different category than the rest of the world's religions. And what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves... What do we do with this? Listen, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, yeah, by the way, you got this real bad tumor. I'll talk to you later. And he starts to leave. What do you do? You grab him. You tackle him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on a second. Hey, what are we going to do about this? We are forced to stop and ask ourselves, "Okay, Looks like he's God. It's a big thing. Looks like he really rose from the dead. What am I going to do with this? Believing. And Jesus is not like believing in Santa Claus. They're very real, intelligent, sophisticated, credible people who've researched who are there. Believing in Jesus is not like believing in the tooth fairy. They're moms and dads and children who have given their lives over the years because of what they've seen in the resurrection. And so we have to ask ourselves, how does this intersect with my life? Because the issue is not... Was he God? That's been done. That's verified. He is. The issue is not, did he rise from the dead? All the evidence in the world says, yes, he did. The issue is, what do you believe about it? Because according to Scripture, you have an appointment one day with Jesus. Philippians 2. It says, therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody's got an appointment with Jesus. One day, George Washington will be there that day, kneeling before Christ. Barack Obama will be there, confessing Jesus. Prince Charles and Queen Elizabeth will be there. Mother Teresa will be there that day, as will Madonna will be. Lady Gaga will be confessing Jesus on that day. Adolf Hitler will be there that day. 
as well as Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible. Louis Pasteur will be there that day. Charles Darwin will be kneeling before Jesus that day. Elvis and uh, Ellen DeGeneres and your parents and everybody you've ever known and everybody you've never known. And you know what? You will be there too. And it won't be an issue of, of, of Jesus' identity. That's set. We will all confess, yes, you are God. Yes, you did rise from the dead. But everybody that day will be separated into two groups. There are folk who will be saying, you are God and you're my Savior. I, I surrendered my life to you. I realized that you died for me. And then there are those folk that say, you're God and I'm going to know you as judge. And the only difference between what group you're in is what you believe about Jesus' identity and what he did. It's the only difference. So let me ask you, who do you think Jesus was? Just a good moral teacher? Just another one of the world's great religion starters? Or was he who he said he was? Did he do what he said he would do? What do you believe about that? Makes all the difference in, in this world, Easter and beyond.